0: Welcome to Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is Season 1,
1: Episode 3 of Wild Olive, and today we're talking about the benefits of reading the Bible using literary concepts, like the concept of myth. I'm your host, Jean Patrol.
0: And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. (laughs) I've really been looking forward to this conversation.
1: (laughs) Me too. And I tell you what, I'm going to dive into the deep end right away. (laughs) I'm looking at chapter two in your book, Permission Granted, which invites readers to, quote, take the Bible into their own hands, end quote. We talked a bit about what it means to take the Bible into our own hands in the first two episodes. So today, We are digging in deeper to see what interpretation can look like when we read with literary lenses. So going to Permission Granted, Chapter 2, you titled Two Creation Stories and Other Myths. And you take care in the opening of that chapter to acknowledge that some people feel uncomfortable when we talk about myth in connection with the Bible. One thing I'm looking forward to today is to share some definitions of myth that I hope help people feel more at ease thinking about biblical stories in terms of myth. As we've already said, we are not trying to be rude or dismissive when we consider myth and the Bible. We are trying to honor the insights, observations, and repository of cultural knowledge that is collected in the Bible stories. Some folks I know take the word myth to mean falsehood, but that's not how we use the word in literary studies. So you say in Permission Granted that myth is, and I'm, I'm quoting from your book, a story written to help explain a natural phenomenon or a cultural practice or belief. I love that definition. I read something like that and I think of Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories, which is a collection of stories that explains how animals got to look like what they look like, how the leopard got its spots, how the elephant got its trunk, and so on. I wish I had been in charge of coming up with the title for the section of Genesis that often gets titled The Curse, because I would have titled it like a Rudyard Kipling story. Why the serpent has no legs. Why people and snakes are scared of each other. Why childbirth hurts. Why farming is hard why men and women struggle for control in families. Now, before we go any further, can you remind listeners what happens when the woman and the man eat the fruit and then God confronts them
0: about it in the Genesis story? Of course. And before I do, I, I do want to go back to your defi- that definition. And I think, in Permission Granted, I don't note, and I think it's important to note, that it. Also, usually a myth is different from other origin stories, types of origin stories, in that they usually involve a god of some sort. So the Oxford definition actually is something more like a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people, or explaining some natural or social phenomenon, which is why I say what I say in permission granted, but also typically involving supernatural beings. So. When we look at, for instance, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they all involve God in some way, which is why that whole section is usually labeled primeval myth. But I have to say, Jean, I do wish you had been involved on the, <laughs> on the translation committee <laughs> because I would much, la- much rather have had some of your, your titles, right, for these stories. I think it would have changed things for a lot of people to think about them that way, you know why snakes and people are afraid of each other. But back to your question about what happened when the man and woman ate the fruit, I think it might be helpful to discuss briefly how, how people have typically engaged that story, and then also how, what it would look like to engage it more as a myth. So for instance, I usually hear people talking about what happened in the garden, as if it truly transpired, first of all, at one point in time. And they do this because that's how they grew up hearing it talked about. So I'm very interested in in passing no judgment on people for the way they've been taught to think about something, right? Or the ways that people grow up engaging the Bible. But from this perspective, God created the first human in Genesis 2, told that one not to eat from two specific trees in the middle of the garden then proceeded to create animals and finally a suitable partner as its equal. Then in chapter three, the part you were asking about, the serpent strikes up a conversation with the woman, you know, as serpents are known for doing.
1: I talk to them all the time.
0: (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) And the serpent shows the woman all of the benefits to be gained from taking a bite. And she does. And then hands some to the man standing next to her. The typical Christian handling of the story, it seems to me, and in in my experience all over the place, really, directs people to focus on the disobedience of those two humans, and thus to be really concerned about what is then labeled sinfulness, and that that sinfulness is then passed along to the rest of humanity. And then this way of understanding it is reinforced when you see that God in the story gets really angry when he realizes that they did indeed eat the very fruit he warned them away from and when he confronts them about their errant choice he each creature then blames one another right so the man is questioned and he points to the woman the woman is questioned and she blames a serpent and the poor serpent can't defend itself but this this idea of passing the buck of responsibility then leads to god delivering a set of punishments right So from this way of reading, these are all things that somehow actually happened. And the human's choice is what led to God having to punish them. And thus all humanity for all time. And so, so many people grow up having simply accepted this whole set of beliefs as reality. On the other hand, we could be reading it all as myth, which is, As we've noted, a story that's trying to give its listeners an explanation for a handful of realities about the world. So for now, let's focus on the part about eating the fruit associated with the knowledge of good and evil, because that's the tree they eat from, right? From a mythic perspective, what is this part of the story struggling with? I would suggest it's that pesky business of having a conscience. If we read this story from beginning to end with the idea in mind that the people were trying to explain where this part of human experience came from, why humans have to deal with the dilemmas that come from knowing good and evil, then we can see that the story is set up to show that the knowledge of good and evil is part of the garden offerings, part of what is available to humans though God would prefer that humans not go there, if you will, which is why God warns them away from it. And it takes the serpent, which was an animal associated with wisdom and knowledge, in the ancient Near East, nudging the woman to check it out. When the woman realizes all the beautiful, wonderful things about the fruit, she takes a bite, hands some to her man who's standing there with her, and their eyes are open which is a nearly universal way of referring to enlightenment. Having your eyes opened simply means you went from naivete to awareness or maturity in that realm, doesn't it?
1: It really does, and that's an an, an interpretation that I can be really, I think, excited about is maybe not the right word. I'm really moved by that. I'm moved by that interpretation, and I would like to go more deeply into what you're opening up. But I'm realizing that I also want to share some incredible observations I've had from students. Hmm. Over the years, I recall a student saying, doesn't God tell them that if they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they will become like God's And they will die. Why don't they die? Was God lying? (laughs) These are questions that students have raised. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to think about the fact that when the woman and the serpent are having a conversation about maybe she will take a bite of this fruit, the woman tells the serpent, well, God told us that we would die. And the serpent says, you will not die. Mm -hmm. And I've had students raise the question, Why did the thing that God said would happen? Why does that not happen? And why does the thing that the serpent says, why is that more true? And I, I never asked questions like that when I was a kid, but wow, is that a good question? I mean, that's really a good question.
0: I think it's important because first of all, I think it is a good question. Yeah. And if you can sit with why that those two things are are true why what god said would happen doesn't and why what the serpent said would happen does if people can let that be true let it be okay according to the story that helps us get to seeing this more mythically versus literally T- to be able to see that the people were trying to find some sort of setup Right. If God is loving and, or the gods are watching over us and all these different things and trying to keep us away from the knowledge of good and evil because it really kind of stinks to have a conscience sometimes. It hurts. It can, right? Or it's a struggle. And so instead of saying this is who God is, he, he sets something up and sees if we're going to be obedient. No, this is a story trying to give framework for a backdrop or an explanation for having a conscience, so maybe God would like to have protected us from it, but it's impossible to, because it's already a part of us.: Yes, yes, right. I and, like that. And the serpent is, in the ancient context, represents knowledge and wisdom, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. of course, the serpent is actually going to speak truth or whatever. I think, it, I think it can just help us be a little, hold the story a little more gently or open-handedly. Right? Yes,
1: yes. And here's another way of thinking that holds the story more open-handedly. Perhaps God wasn't speaking about a literal death. I've had some interesting conversations about, well, okay, so they don't die in the sense that they keel over in that moment, but maybe something does die. And back to your point about this eye opening leading from naivete to maturity, it could be something like a death of naivete or a death of a lack of self-consciousness or a death Mm -hmm. of full creaturely immersion in nature. There are many kinds of death that we could talk about that seem to occur here.
0: Yes. And I love, I really like those suggestions. And then again, my very conservative background, I want to speak to, I also hear students saying, well, God actually just meant a spiritual death, that we would actually lose our mortality, our immortality. Mm. And I want to be clear that the story itself, does not back that up. Mm. The story itself, and we're, I don't think we're going to discuss it today, but I just want to slide it in there that when you read to the end of chapter three, it's, mm-hmm. it's clear that humans never had immortality. So that wasn't actually something that was on the table to lose. But some of the early church fathers read that onto the story so that people kind of have believed that we had immortality and lost it because of the eating the fruit. But the story itself doesn't uphold that. So.
1: I appreciate that. I do think it's really good to remember what is a supportable interpretation and what is a Mm -hmm. less supportable interpretation, because obviously with literary interpretation, we always want to look for textual evidence. What does Mm -hmm. the story actually say? So I appreciate that. So I also want to share... Uh, some more things about that moment, that's an incredible moment, and this is the moment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This business of knowing that you are naked is as interesting, metaphorically speaking, as having your eyes opened. I like your emphasis on eyes opening as moving from naivete to awareness, a kind of en-light-en-ment. <laughs> I'm putting hyphens in between all those things. Yes. light and ment a-, a coming of the light. This, they knew that they were naked part of the story suggests many possibilities about the kind of awareness that's developing, that's being explored in the story. Awareness of vulnerability, I think especially in regard to nature, awareness of mortality, the birth of shame, not in the unhealthy sense of feeling less than, but in the healthy sense of the practice of observing boundaries, especially a boundary between what's private and what's public. Um, Eric Fromm, psychological theorist, liked to talk about this story as the emergence of an awareness of separateness, a human sense of separateness from the divine and a human sense of separateness from the rest of nature or the Hmm. rest of creation, if we use the language of the story. And I think any way we interpret it, we're getting to respond to the question, what is the story thinking about? I think you, you said a very similar version of that question. You raised the question, what is the story struggling with? And the way I often put it, what is the story thinking about? So the, the story is thinking about the human situation, Mm -hmm. what's private, what's public, how it feels to know things, uh, to be aware of oneself. And, and that can be painful. And the, that part of the story that gets called the curse might be exploring, ooh, it feels kind of painful to be a being that's not wholly at home. Immersed in nature. So, so there's a whole lot, um, that I just threw out there, Jennifer. I want to let you
0: get a word in here. I, I just am enjoying, you know, hearing what you're talking about and thinking about it because I think those are, those are rich with possibility. And I think those are helpful ways to think about this story. Again, from my background or my experiences, I've, I've heard a lot of people pick up on the shame. And attach it to bodily nakedness, Mm -hmm. attach it to sex, because what ends up happening in the story is they do end up having sex or it's implied. And I've, I've, I've inherited some ways of thinking about this story that focus heavily on the judgment or the shamefulness and sex and bodies and, and even where people connect this this awareness of one's nakedness and a shamefulness about it is what justifies clothing <laughs> mm. and and it's not that those aren't necessarily connected in some way but I really like what you're saying right this but it would mean from my perspective a change of language in the story because that shamefulness or embarrassment I think is is in the language but I like what you're doing with you know a healthy sense of boundaries or an awareness of a lack of fitting in in the world that we used to fit in within or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I appreciate that. I'm thinking of things, Jennifer, like uh, I mean, in, in my house we do not parade around naked. Okay? <laughs> right. We we don't. Yeah. Um and <laughs> I don't parade around naked in public either, thankfully for the public (laughs) um (laughs) and i'm talking about that 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 it's human to want to maintain boundaries or in some way regulate what how we are seen let me put it that way i like that yeah and maybe that's uh something that the story is also exploring
0: so yeah i think that is lovely and you know Again, I do think that there might be some people listening to this who would find that odd, perhaps. Fair enough. But maybe they'll find it liberating as well, right? To have someone say, look at this possibility about this story and what it might be trying to wrestle with or give voice to, right? But let me just tease out just a little bit more what I mean when I say some might find it odd, because I remember thinking about... Every part of the Bible as being focused on—this was how, I think, unconsciously or implicitly I was taught to read the Bible—is that the Bible was always focused on telling humans one of the following things—who God is, what God's intentions are for humans, what happens when humans are sinful or disobedient, or how best to worship God—so that Every single element of the Bible is about humans and God in some way, and I think that a lot of people have been taught to read it that way. To have been taught to see it as a guidebook. You know, everything is delivered straight from God for us to understand something, right? And I think that that does limit how you think about what these stories are. And I, again, I say that coming out of my own experiences, it did. I wasn't open to an idea such as what the ideas that you've just put out there for us. But I think what you're suggesting takes it out of that realm of judgment or a how-to manual and opens up conversations about human realities.
2: Hey, listeners. This is Matt Byrne, one of the producers for Wild Olive. I'm popping in with some questions for you about today's material. First, what ideas do you associate with the word myth? Do you find Jean and Jennifer's understanding of myth to be different from yours? Also, what's your reaction to thinking about Genesis creation stories as myth? What were you taught about what the Bible is? Have you ever thought about genre in connection with the Genesis creation stories? Well, hey, now's your chance.
1: One of the reasons why I feel passionate about opening up interpretation is because if we only allow religious reading of the Bible, we leave out a tremendous number of readers. There are so many readers who are interested in significant works of literature and whether you use the Bible as a rule book or you don't, or whether it's relevant to your spiritual life or it isn't, regardless of that, there's simply no doubting that the Bible is a profoundly influential collection of of literature, of writings, let's say. I literature can be as triggering of a word as myth, I think, for some <laughs> yes. people. So That's let's right. say writings, right? That's right. Yeah. It, it's it's there's no question that it's a profoundly influential, very significant collection of writings. And as a literature person, I'm very eager to welcome everyone into Bible interpretation, whether they are religious or secularist, uh, however they identify. Um, and that's one reason why I'm glad we're doing this work. So that's my, just wanted to add that in, but let, let me get back to the, the, concept of myth. So in my years of teaching the Bible as literature, I- I've collected definitions of myth, and you know yours is one of them. And I've done that in order to help a wide range of readers, no matter how religious or secularist their worldviews are, I'd like to help all readers to appreciate some of the Bible's deepest insights. I'll add that the, I, I believe that the reason why people read literature, write literature, make literature, create scholarship about literature, I really think is because at a fundamental level, we're always trying to understand where we are in the world. I think everyone's, I mean, we don't always ask these questions consciously, but oh my gosh, what is this world like? And who am I in this world? And how can I get along in this world? The world is so painful. Oh my gosh. Like, And literature lets us engage those kinds of questions. So I really think the Bible is a piece of literature that engages those questions at a really remarkably deep level. Um, My friend Tom Schmidt has a distinction that I like. Uh, He says that to call Bible stories myths is, and I'm quoting Tom right now, uh, quote, not to imply that the stories are false in terms of history or science, but to imply that they are in fact true in terms of the human condition and that's the end of that quote. And he goes on to say, quote, a myth is a primal story that conveys fundamental insights about reality. And that's the end of the quote. Schmidt uses uh, this device, like capital T truth means fundamental insight, small t truth means scientific and historical accuracy. And lots of my students have found that helpful to think about. I mean, when the question comes up, well, is the story true? I feel like, the response to that is well what kind of truth are you talking about and i'm interested in the kinds of truths that literature explores emily dickinson wrote tell all the truth but tell it slant success in circuit lies and i think that's what literature does like it's it's looking for a kind of truth a kind of insight but it's looking for it indirectly not like science looks for it not like history tries to right. narrate it so uh, some of us care a lot about asserting that the bible is true with a small t meaning it's scientifically and historically true. And some of us are more concerned about the fundamental insights, the capital T truth contained in any given story in the Bible or in in another collection of literature. So I don't look to this story in Genesis. Like I don't look to Genesis for small T truth. I'm not looking for earth science or scientific or historical accuracy. I look to it to understand fundamental insights. Like why are people so uncomfortable with parts of nature. Uh, Why does childbirth hurt or how do we feel about the fact that it hurts? Like that's, that's a crazy thing, right? One of the most amazing things you could ever do in your life is also one of the most painful things you could ever do in your life? What's up with that? Like somebody did need to write about that, right? That's that's kind of crazy. Um, why is it so hard to uh, get food out of the ground, earn a living? Why do men and women struggle for power in families? Like these are really important insights and important things to explore. And I really think... That I mean, certain things are true, right? Farming is difficult. Childbirth hurts. Men and women struggle for power in families and in the culture, right? And that's true. So, for me, anyway, um, as you think about the mythic dimensions of these creation stories, do you like to engage the idea of truth, like whatever of whatever kind? Like, what kinds of truth interest you when you consider the creation stories?
2: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, it does, Mm. and I I engage that very similarly to what I've heard you describe. And I often take a decent amount of time to have people sit with the fact that today, when we talk about truths, we do mean, you you know, we do mean scientifically, we do mean, you know, mathematical truths, right? (laughs) Equations have lasting truthfulness or whatever. And I think it's been my experience that People who have grown up with more traditional Christian engagements with this word truth have a have a hard time seeing general stories that are talking about humanity and human experiences as capital T truth. And what I mean is capital T truth belongs to God. And what God might be saying about humans or about the gospel even to Jesus and and truth true god you know Jesus is the way the truth and the life and i know we're talking about something in the hebrew bible here but most many christians i won't say i don't it's hard to qualify but a lot of people growing up with traditional ways of thinking about these these writings these texts have been taught to see jesus See it all through a Jesus lens, even when we are talking about something that came along long before him. So, you know, big T truth, I I don't actually like to distinguish, to be honest, Mm. between small T and big T, because Mm -hmm. I... I prefer to say there are different types of truth. And mm. here, when we're talking about literature, we're not talking about science. We're not even trying to talk about science. Right, right. Let's just, these, there are some, let's look for the truths that are in these stories. You know, the human experiences that they do give voice to. Mm. But again, that's, yeah, because of my, my own background with Big T Truth and that that rules the day right from that perspective you know secular secular realms don't even get to claim to have truth and 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 I and I say that I'm not trying to mock that I, I'm trying to explain you know where my thinking was and therefore where maybe some people listening to this their thinking might be in relation to that word truth but I I think it's good to put out these other ways of thinking about it as something to think about right
1: yeah yeah I, as, as I listen to you, I'm remembering that An- another way I think to talk about this idea of truth as insight is mythopoetic truth. I mean, sometimes I find myself trying to draw a distinction between mythopoetic thinking and scientific thinking and to mm-hmm. point out that yes. ancient Mediterranean people aren't making any attempt to do the same type of cultural activity that, say, Albert Einstein does or Madame Curie, right? Right. Right. Just not trying to do the same thing. Right. And I feel like so often contemporary readers of the Bible, we are so totally steeped in a scientific paradigm that we have forgotten how to operate with any other kind of paradigm. but. All of these stories are written from within a mythopoetic paradigm for thinking about everything. Yes. And I just think that we can be more mm-hmm. gentle with the stories and more respectful mm-hmm. if we remember that gap between like mythopoetic culture and post scientific revolution, post enlightenment scientific paradigm culture. I think that's, that's helpful, but as you've pointed out, there's are, are a lot of people who really want to assert that they alone know the capital mm-hmm. T truth. Um, it's just so hard for people, conservative and liberal alike, to entertain multiple truths. Um, and I, You know, there's a word for that. You know the word. I know the word. You know, monologism, just the attitude that there's only one right way to think. Like if you don't see Jesus in the older testament, the Hebrew Bible, however you want to call it, then you're missing it. Right. And, and that monologism, the idea that I and people like me have the one right way to think. Is It's just a constant danger in our collective life, whether we tend toward conservative or liberal ways of thinking. I'm going to confess right here that I also think that I know the correct way to think, (laughs) that my way, and the people like me, like the only possible way to think is to accept that there are multiple truths. That's it. I'm right. So I also, I have that. I want to confess and I mean, I think we practice humility if we try to understand our own grasp of truth to be partial, provisional, subject Mm -hmm. to revision. It might be capital T true that human beings experience themselves as separate from the rest of nature, and that this separateness is painful. It's probably capital T true that we all experience ourselves on some level as painfully vulnerable, vulnerable to nature, illness, Mm -hmm. death, (laughs) and to the judging eyes of others. Sometimes I feel like that God character, that that's exploring how painful it is to feel ourselves judged by others. And now I'm flashing on this seminar that I did once. And I don't even remember the name of the seminar, but I do remember that the facilitator was saying, do you feel like people are judging you? (laughs) Well, you're right. They are. People are, (laughs) people are judgment machines. If you stand up there and say anything, you are going to be judged. Get over it. Um, (laughs) So I, you know, that uh, sometimes I think that that concept of God that circulates throughout a lot of conservative Christian culture is about feeling a sense of judgment, just feeling judged, and that's painful. Um, I'm convinced, by the way, that it is capital T true that private and public are useful categories Mm -hmm. of human experience, Mm -hmm. and I like having multiple literary interpretations of the story because it helps us guard against the temptation to be monologic in our thinking over certain, over-determined, over-dogmatic, that's the opposite of humility.
0: I wanted to move on to the conversation that I think you wanted to have here about the first chapter in Genesis and the creativity that it may be giving voice to.
1: Yeah, thank you. As you know, I'm really interested in insights about creativity that are contained in the first creation story. I'm not looking for scientific accuracy. I certainly am not looking for geology when I read the story. But I do love looking for insight. I'm an insight hunter. So listeners, if you go and read the first couple of chapters in Genesis, you'll notice a pattern. So the way that it goes, the God character says, let there be light. And then there's light. God says, let the night be separated from the day. And that happens. God says, let there be two lights, meaning the sun and the moon. And there they are. So the God character uses language as an instrument of creativity. God speaks the world into being. And I'm going to add an aside that in a lot of creation myths, creation stories, the world comes into being because God's fight Sometimes they rip each other up and parts of them become parts of the universe. So here's this story where God speaks the world into being. I get excited about that as a language person. And I also think that it is capital T true that language can be used in that way mindfully to bring the world into being. That's why we're not supposed to say to our kids, you lousy good for nothing. Right. So we don't, we shouldn't use language like that because it brings the world into being yes. um, so we maybe we're not creating galaxies with our language like happens in the story but we do use language to build ourself to build our family to build our social lives they all depend so heavily on the ways we use language they do
0: and again i echo so much of or i resonate with so much of what you're saying in my way of understanding human experiences language is deeply powerful symbolically powerful even. And I personally spend a decent amount of time highlighting some of the negative manifestations of this dynamic, you know, with slogans, or if we're not paying attention to some of these things that are being said by people in positions of power. And because of that, I welcome this positive angle you've highlighted for us.
1: Mm. Yeah. I use it in parenting all the time. (laughs) Um, Yes. So... I, I do want to also say from a literary perspective, I love the rhythms and the cadences that are created by the repetition in the story. I know sometimes people feel kind of impatient with the repetition that there is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in some biblical narrative. And, and sometimes I'm impatient with repetition. But in this case, I think it's part of what creates the rhythm. So even in English, it sounds very rhythmic. God says, let there be, and then the thing springs into being. And then another pattern that repeats is some variation of the sentence, and God saw that it was good, or, and God saw that it was very good. But, you know, say something, something's created, oh, it's very good. <laughs> um, if we do read this story as an allegory about creativity, that pattern is, contains a lot of useful insight about the creative process. And by the way, an allegory for anyone who might be wondering, it's an extended symbol system. It's all that it is. It's a story that uses pictures and story to think about something that's true, but it's abstract. So if we read the story as an allegory about creative process, we can see quite a few cool ideas being explored. First, that creativity involves process, that creating something isn't instant. Mm -hmm. The story also suggests that creativity to be effective requires affirmation. It is good. It was good. Powerful creators acknowledge the goodness of their creations. That's why uh, life coaches and therapists always tell you what's your self-talk listen to your Mm self-talk revise your self-talk right what is the story you're telling yourself about yourself and about your creations and if we're going to go by genesis i think we have to be saying well that that was good that was good Um, (laughs) (laughs) um the story also suggests there's rhythms to creativity that creators need to move in patterns establishing rhythms Making things consistently on a daily basis. I ha- I know a painter, a friend of mine who's a painter, doesn't paint every day, but sketches every day. Mm-hmm. Um, another important idea explored by the story is that creators need rest. It can't be work, work, work all the time. There have to be times of rest following a creative burst. Um. So again, I didn't want to go on too long. Jennifer, listen, for someone like you, who at one time felt pressured to accept this story as science, how does it feel to talk about the story as an
0: allegory of creativity? Honestly, (laughs) otherworldly. That was my first thought when I read through your question. I was tracking with your allegory, tracking with, you know, tracking with all this. And I think, wait, that is just so dramatically different, you know, but... Again, you are inviting our listeners, me specifically, but also those listening to this, to think about shifting the framework for how you think about what the story is. So I do personally welcome the shift. And it's, it's still a shift for me in listening to you talk about it, because I'm, I'm so often engaging people who are at that more traditional way of, of thinking about the Bible, right? So they're thinking about it in terms of what this story tells us about who God is. So I'm most often engaging people and asking them to consider something a little more complex starting right there where they are, right? Shake that up first and then lead them and then invite them to consider these additional ways of thinking such as what you've just suggested. Hmm. So I I appreciate what you're what you're saying and I wonder if others will have a similar response of what does she mean to th- that this is actually a story about creativity? But it is. <laughs> it is. It's lovely. it can be. It's yeah. one of the things it can be, right? It's it quite, can be all those things you said are quite useful for understanding or thinking about the creative process. I'm, I'm glad
1: you're ready to go there with me. I can say I do believe they are supported by the text. So um, yes. that's always my goal. And I know that we were thinking of talking about translation, but mm-hmm. I'm noticing the time and thinking I know that we'll be coming back to the issue of translation. So maybe now is a good time to wrap it up. Are there any other thoughts you want to get in there?
0: No, I, I agree. We've had a lovely exchange here yes. about myth and what that means in reading parts of the Bible, specifically in Genesis. So
1: I enjoyed it. Thank you for it. Thank, Thank you. you.
2: This is Matt Byrne, one of the editors and producers at Wild Olive. Thank you for listening. If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. You contact Gene or Jennifer at genepatrol.com or jennifergracebird.com. Catch you next time!